0: And next tonight, imagine something, something,
1: something. Hi, and welcome to DSA San Francisco's The Priority. On this podcast, you'll hear education sessions and reports from our chapter priority campaigns, including how you can get involved in our work to fight for socialist transformation in San Francisco, across the country, and around the world. Today's episode is a recording of a panel held on Thursday, October 14th, titled Jane McAlevey's Organizing Model, A Critical Evaluation. Uh, Heads up that uh, part of the audio starting around the uh, 11 minute mark is a little bit crackly uh, And this is a long one, but we hope you enjoy. Thanks All right, well um, Welcome everybody uh, To our panel on Jane McAlevey's book, No No Shortcuts uh, Being hosted here tonight by the San Francisco chapter of the Democratic Socialists of America Um, We have three very distinguished panelists and and, uh, organizers that I have great respect for um, that I'll be introducing shortly um, after I make some, just some, like I said, some brief comments about how this all kind of came about Um, and, uh, you know, kind of like maybe what we're hoping to do with the panel tonight. Um, like Evan was saying, you know, this, this seems like a really special night to be talking about labor organizing with, you know, uh, the John Deere workers coming out, uh, going out today with the, the ongoing Kell- Kellogg strike, um, you know, that Alabama coal miners have been on strike, more than a thousand Alabama coal miners have been on strike for like six months. Um, and then, you know, who knows what will happen next week as far as the strike in, uh, in Hollywood and um, the nurses and, and healthcare care workers, uh, not just in California, but, you know, Buffalo and uh, other parts of the country. So, you know, there it, it was just like looking at the news today, there was just so much so many stories in the in the mainstream media about you know this so-called strike tober uh, as people are calling it now um, and uh, you know but also just you know about like the tightening labor markets and the number of people who are le- leaving their jobs um, companies not being able to you know complaining about not being able to find low-wage labor um, so it really feels like a, a special night to be talking about no, no shortcuts um, I, I'm a member of the California Faculty Association at San Francisco State, um, as is, you know, one of tonight's panelists, Ann Robertson. And uh, last summer we, we formed this study group to read Jane McAlevey's No Shortcuts with other members of the CFA um, and, you know, other faculty who are organizing on their campuses uh, in the CSU system up and down the state. Um, You may or may not know that over the last few decades, academic labor has really increasingly turned into this two-tiered system um, to the point that, you know, contingent faculty, uh, so-called adjuncts, now teach a majority of the college classes across the country, and somewhere around 70% of faculty appointments are now non-tenure track. Um, so a bunch of us who are contingent faculty at San Francisco State, my, myself included and, and Anne, um, formed a subcommittee within our union, within CFA, to push for equity for lecturer faculty um, and with the long-term objective being to, you know, abolish this two-tier system altogether. So this summer, a bunch of us, um, you know, got together to, to, to read No Shortcuts and you know, we discussed like you know what she calls the organizing model, in, in, you know, in contrast to um, the advocacy model and the, and the mobilizing model. Um, and you know, we talked about things like how to implement structured tests within our union. Um, there's generally lots of very good practical um, how-to advice kind of throughout the book, um, and and that's you know that's turned out to be really valuable for us within CFA because our contract within the CSU system, um, has expired. Uh, our bargaining is now at an impasse. And so we may be headed for a strike in the spring. And, you know, if we're gonna be headed for a strike in the spring, we we need to be organizing now, like, you know, like yesterday, honestly. Um, but you know as we were reading the book last summer more and more critiques also began to emerge from our discussions um, especially from people who are more experienced organizers and you know we started circulating um, other critiques of you know like friendly critiques of no shortcuts that have been written by you know folks like kim moody um and you know other long uh, long time organizers and so tonight's panel kind of evolved out of those discussions um, from the need, on the one hand, to try to absorb the lessons that McAlevey has to offer, um, but also to approach her book from a critical perspective based on our own organizing experiences and, and struggles. Um, so now, the last thing I want to mention, too, is that you know, during this time, we, we've also tried to expand the scope of our organizing in connection with DSASF uh, by forming this labor circle of education workers. Uh, and this labor circle has basically connected, you know, those of us at San Francisco State with like, you know, the, the K through 12 teachers in, in UESF, uh, UASF, and, and the movement of uh, rank and file educators, uh, you know, that one of our panelists, Alex, is, is a part of the, the SF More um, movement. And, uh, you know, as well as like people from City College and and anyone who, you know, is an education worker in San Francisco. So, you know, if you're you're an ed worker in San Francisco, please consider reaching out and and joining and becoming part of our labor circle. Um, DSASF is also hosting our first organizing training session as part of this labor circles priority campaign Uh, and that's going to be on Monday, October the 17th. Uh, and it's going to be led by another one of our panelists, the great Evan McLaughlin. Uh, and so you can go to the DSA website, uh, or the calendar to register for that. And, uh, I'm sure that, you know, Evan will probably have a little bit more to say about what to expect with that. Um, so, uh, that's pretty much the extent of like how I wanted to kind of set things up. Um, I'm good with like, you know, um, keeping time and, and taking stack when, uh, you know, questions arise and everything like that. So I'm good with, you know, facilitating things. Um, I think, let's see, Alex has asked, is, Monday, is it Monday the 18th? Oh, it's Sunday the 17th. Sorry about that. It's Sunday the 17th. Uh, not Monday. I was, like, I was wondering why like a union organizing meeting was happening at like noon on Monday. But yeah, that's just me. Anyway, so that that makes a whole lot more sense. <laughs> Thanks. So let me uh, introduce my, my my colleague Anne uh, here. Anne Robertson is a long time uh, a long term member of the executive board of the California Faculty Association at San Francisco State. And she's a member um, of the Equity for Lecture Faculty Committee of her union, and also a member of DSASF's Labor Organizing Committee and DSASF's Education Organizing Committee. So um, I will hand it off then uh, to Anne.
2: Great, thanks so much, Ryan. And um, so I'm going first, because even though I have criticisms of McAlevey, I find that one thing that she does that's really, really valuable is she uh, distinguishes what she calls the mobilizing approach to union operations and the organizing approach. And the mobilizing approach is really bad and that's what most unions are about. But while the organizing model is really good and there are only a few unions that have adopted it, but they've done a sensational job. So, I want to, that's what I want to spend most of my time on, distinguishing these two models. But let me start off with just kind of a general introduction. Um, and, you know, what, let me just first say that we all know that appearances can be deceiving in our society. So, people who are looked up to can, in fact, turn out to be the most despicable people. Uh, and I'm thinking, for example, of, politicians religious leaders university professors etc and then those people in our society who are labeled despicable or or most unworthy can turn out to be the real heroes and I'm thinking for example of people who are incarcerated our students low-wage workers and people like that so things can be just the opposite as they uh, that they appear in our society and in my experience I'm finding that unions turn out to be a domain where appearances can be the most deceptive, in that good people often look to our unions as shining examples of social movements, but they're judging just by appearances. In fact, many unions are playing a reactionary role to one degree or another, and they could be doing so much better if they were transformed into a more democratic organizing model. Uh, and just to give you an example of what I mean by unions being particularly deceptive is uh, Ryan mentioned that we were in the study group together with fa- with faculty from across the state, reading uh, McAlevey's No Shortcuts. And uh, I must say, at the end of our, our session, Most of these people are still absolutely clueless when it comes to distinguishing um, a a union that's going in the right direction and a union that's going in the wrong direction. And it's not because there's something wrong with these people. It's because it can be uh, so difficult and complicated to understand The nature of a union, because some really are going in the wrong direction and some are really going in the right direction, but people don't understand uh, how to distinguish one from the other. So that's what I want to focus on. Uh, So, uh, in any case, Yes, so uh, let's go to the second slide, uh, Alex. Uh, I want to start with the bad model. It's, the, it's called, uh, McAlevey refers to it as the mobilizing model. And I just want to start off with some general characteristics, and then I'm going to list a bunch of specific characteristics. But this is the model that most unions adopt. And uh, they're very, just keep in mind, mobilizing model is a bad model. So uh, first of all, it's a model that uh, labor bureaucrats rely on. They don't engage the rank and file in any significant way. This model was rejected in the 1930s when there was a labor upsurge, but it's become incredibly widespread now and almost more than 90% of the unions, this mobilizing model. Um, this approach can win gains, but these gains are relatively minor. And for that reason, the working class has steadily lost economic ground since the 1970s, as more and more social wealth goes to the corporations and the rich, and less and less goes to the working class. And inequalities, of course, have been uh, soaring. But uh, one of the things that really shows you how, uh, how bad this approach is, is that the unions uh, lots of the unions have accepted this two-tier worker system, which is just horrible because it divides the workers and it puts them pits them against one another in a really um, uh, unhelpful way. And uh, the last thing I'd say as a general introduction to the mobilizing model is, is that it's a kind of a reflection of how capitalist society works in general. And by that, I mean we've got a society where the elites rule and the vast majority of the population is simply uninvolved in governing, except to cast a vote now once in a while, uh, if we bothered to do that. Um, but, um, but by and large, we live in a society where people don't engage in politics. They don't engage in any serious running of the country. Okay, now, so keep the slide, Alex. and I'm, I'm just gonna go through quickly. A bunch of, of particular characteristics of this kind of a it's a bureaucratic union so first of all top elected officials run the union they make all the major decisions and they maintain an exclusive hold on power uh they hire professional staff and the staff have to uh, uh be loyal to them otherwise the staff are fired immediately the rank and file are almost entirely uninvolved in the operations of the union. They regard the union as a kind of a business where they pay money in the form of dues and they expect a service in return for the dues they pay. Otherwise, they're disengaged. Um, and Of course, they expect by service. I mean, they expect uh, better pay and better uh, benefits. Um, when the union mounts a campaign to win a contract uh, to win a contract, uh, it's the top officials that lead these campaigns uh, along with the paid staff. And when they hold demonstrations, they're relatively small, attracting a group of people that McAlevey refers to as um, activists. And activists in her definition are people who are already kind of leftist, convinced, we're dedicated. I mean, people like us are activists, for example. And we're prepared to go out um, to these demonstrations. But most of the rank and file don't bother. Uh, and you know, when you have the, when the um, uh, union uh, leaders put on these demonstrations, they're small, but then they hype them incredibly. So just on the side, for example, back in 2011, we had a, uh, organized a strike on one of the campuses and the faculty didn't want to go out. So the union had to appeal to the um, students not to come to class, which they were obliged to do, <laughs> not surprisingly. But, uh, but then just a the, uh, couple of weeks ago, the president of our union talked about what an inspiring strike that was. So it's just <laughs> that kind of uh, double speak, as it were. Uh, oh, this, this is an important point. This mobilizing model relies heavily on politicians. So our unions pay Democrats lots of money, and we get a few pennies in return. Um, that when they uh, negotiate contracts, they negotiate them behind closed doors. They don't involve the rank and file. Uh, and what I, what I mean they, it's the top leadership of the union and, and staff people. Uh, this kind of a model, they reject strikes. And they've explicitly rejected strikes. They used to refer to the strikes as obsolete. That was back in the 1990s. But they reject the strikes. And instead, what they do is they quote unquote, partner with the bosses. So boy, that really, (laughs) that really uh, undermines a fighting spirit when you're partnering with the people who are trying to screw you. Uh, And I'm just going to List a few more points. These are points that I have added um, uh, on my own. But um, one way that these top leaders hold on to power is they simply don't report on what they do. And unfortunately, most people, of course, are not seasoned in unions. They don't understand all of the intricacies of how unions operate. And the rank and file don't realize they're not getting reports. So they don't know that they don't know. And this means that they stay disengaged and passive. So that, but that's, that's how the, the bureaucrats hold on to power. Uh, oh, and then another characteristic of the mobilizing model is that often these top officials award themselves with lavish salaries. And I'll give you a good example of this Roseanne DeMarro, she headed up the uh, Nurses in California Union and then the National Nurses United. And she was her salary was more than four hundred thousand dollars. She ran her union as a top-down affair, but she supported Bernie Sanders, so everybody thinks she's wonderful. So, but that's that's an example of how appearances can be deceiving. And the last point with respect to this um, mobilizing model is that you have to realize that some of these top leaders adopt this model because they're power hungry, they're selfish, they're greedy, et cetera, et cetera, all these bad things. But you have to realize that a lot of good people also fall into the mobilizing model because that's what they're used to. And that's the only kind of a model they've been uh, they've been introduced to. So they don't understand that there are other alternatives and much better alternatives. So just because somebody is leading a union that has adopted the mobilizing model, it doesn't mean they're a bad person. So just something to keep in mind. Okay, so uh, Alex, if you could go to the third slide. So now I want to turn to the good way of running a union. It's what uh, McAlevey calls the organizing model. And this is when, when she uses the word organizing, she means rank and file organizing. I just want to start with some general characteristics. So this model is based on a class struggle approach. She uses those terms explicitly. And that, I think, is good. It's The goal is to unite the workers to fight the bosses. Uh, It's about shifting power. It's not pleading with them to give us a raise or pleading with the politicians to help us. It's about taking power from them and shifting it to us. And third, it's, uh, it's, it's based on the conviction that the working class is a powerful force in society. Because when the working class is organized and prepared to engage in collective action, we can win big demands. After all, the working class comprises the vast majority of the population and society cannot function unless we are willing to go to work and take orders. And when we refuse to do that, that shifts the power in our direction. It rests on the Marxist principle that the working class can liberate itself, must liberate itself. Only the working class can liberate itself. That's an important principle and it deserves a long explanation that we don't have time. And finally, and this is very important, this model has plenty of empirical evidence that proves beyond a doubt that it's far more effective in winning big gains than the mobilizing approach. It's far more effective. And we've got all of this empirical evidence to, to share. OK, so I'm just going to run through quickly the. Um, the uh, some of the specific characteristics of the organizing model. So worker first, workers are motivated to act because of a deep sense of injustice. And this is a powerful motivating factor because people's sense of what is just and fair is part of what holds societies together. So when you say it's not just and fair, you're making a profound point. Seeing fiction that the strike is the most valuable weapon. Uh, because the strike directly targets the boss's profits, and that's what they're all about. So they are running scared when their profits are uh, are reduced to zero. In fact, negative, because when their when their businesses sit idle, they're losing money. Third, this organizing approach embraces the idea of mass open negotiations, not the negotiations behind closed doors, but open negotiations where the rank and file can observe, uh, can observe what's going on and participate. Fourth, this organizing model attempts to actively engage all the members of the union to put up a fight. And this is accomplished by one-on-one conversations with every member of the, of the union. Uh, where they're encouraged to fight the injustices being committed against them. And these one-on-one conversations plus collective action, they help create social bonds among us union members, which is very important because we overcome our isolated individualism where we're powerless and we begin to build these bonds and we begin to feel a sense of power when we have these bonds. Um, let's see. Okay. Number five, all the workers must have a democratic voice in identifying the demands that the workers are going to fight for in their contract negotiations. Because if you don't do that, then, um, the demands that are generated might not reflect the interests of the workers. And then who wants to put up a fight for something that's not important to you? Sixth, um, this approach seeks to build alliances with, the community. So, for example, the Chicago Teachers Union, which was a, just a sterling example of this organizing approach, they made alliances with the parents and together they fought the closing of neighborhood schools that the mayor of Chicago was trying to um, trying to implement. And then these last few points are just me adding to McAlevey, um, these people, uh, the organizing uh, union, are uh, completely transparent about what they're doing so that the membership knows everything. And, uh, and the, but the rank and file, in order for them to become engaged, they must have the, the fundamental power over the direction the union goes in. If they don't have that power, they're not going to get deeply engaged. Their engagement in the union will be proportional to how much power they feel or how much of a voice they feel they have in determining the direction of the union. This approach, uh, this organizing, revolutionizing the, work, the workplace culture because, see, capitalism imposes on us a culture that has us isolated from one another. We focus on our own welfare. We compete against one another for promotions. But when we join together to put up a fight, for gains for all of us, then this new culture emerges and we support one another. We're no longer miserable, stressed out, isolated individuals with no power, but we take pleasure in the social bonds that bind us together and that make us virtually a family. And I've heard people use the word we're like a family when they describe their experience in the union. So when when you create this, this new culture where we're all supporting one another as opposed to being in our own isolated little world, we take pride in creating a world based on humanistic principles, not the kind of selfishness and greed and exploitation endemic to capitalism. And so let me just do my uh, conclusion really quickly. Uh, a lot of us have criticisms of DSA. DSA is not, not perfect, but it gets a lot of credit for embracing McAlevey's approach McAlevey's rank and file approach, and and it's helping to organize workshops. EWOC is a DSA, is a part of DSA. It's uh, organizing workshops on these principles so that people can transform their unions into truly democratic unions where everyone's engaged. So all of us on this panel, by the way, are engaged in rank and file organizing, and many more people around the world are beginning to be introduced to this rank and file organizing approach that can be so powerful. So I'm convinced that with the inequalities in wealth growing so dramatically in this country and around the world, it's inevitable that there are gonna be explosive outbreaks among sectors of the working class. And if we are organized, we can fight back and we can win. So I'll leave it at that.
1: Great. Thank you, Anne. Uh, Many important points, I think, that um, we can sort of come back to. Um, uh, Evan, are you up next or Alex? Uh, I think it's me. Okay, cool. Well, um, I will uh, just introduce, this is Evan McLaughlin, a socialist and uh, labor organizer in San Francisco. He has worked with city workers, uh, nonprofits, profits healthcare workers, manufacturing, food service workers. You got an industry, Evan will organize it. <laughs> um, he is a uh, co-chair of uh, DSASF's Labor Organizing Committee and also a member of the Red Star Caucus.
0: Uh, so take it away, Evan. Great, thanks Ryan. Um, and thanks Anne for um, leading us off here. Um, I think most likely what I'm going to be talking through is what you could call mostly friendly critique, Um, because the vast majority of everything that Anne just laid out, um, I'm absolutely in agreement with. And in general, I do think that the fact that DSA and workers, labor organizers are actually studying closely studying a method of trying to organize and build power based on masses of workers, in my opinion, that can only be a positive thing, right? That we have people on the left, people in labor, workers who are thinking deeply about how it is that you actually build power, how do you actually move people in a way that's effective, that actually shifts power rather than just, you know, perpetuates the kind of uh, state of the labor movement as it has been for quite a while. Um, and I do think, I do want to run through some of the things that I think, um, are some really positive, some of them indispensable contributions from McAlevey before I start talking about what some of the critique is. Um, in general, I think having this sense of rigor to leftist or labor organizing, that we do need to look at, you know, empirically testing, okay, how do we actually approach this work? Um, How do we build up the level of support in a workplace so you can go on strike with 90% support? Um, This concept of organizing and distinguishing that from the concept of mobilizing, uh, extremely important, especially somewhere like DSA, where it's incredibly easy to default to a mobilizing model where you're only talking to the people that are sort of um, already... uh, inclined to be engaged with DSA, I guess is the way to put it. Um, In addition, the emphasis on power coming from mass movement, particularly and specifically mass worker movement and specifically emphasizing the power of the strike, I think that's crucial. Um, The concept of open negotiations that are open to the membership um, is also an extremely important thing. And I was trained in uh, Unite Here, which is a union that really, very, very closely follows this model of kind of Mac Levy's type of organizing. You know, they they have been doing this since before Mac Levy put this book out, but the methods that they use really track very closely along with it. Um, and so that's where a lot of my perspective in this comes from. And there are a lot of things from MacLevy's approach that I do still utilize, like this concept of very. Uh, thought through one-on-one conversations, that's actually what the training on Sunday is about. However, there's a lot of things that I actually, that if I look at the and in my experience, the way that I was trained in Unite here, there's actually sometimes a real disconnect between the way that um, that sort of training and that sort of uh, model tells us that organizing happens and that building worker power looks like, that to, to, in my opinion, my experience doesn't line up with what it actually looks like on the ground, right? Um, the real primary example of this that I wanna focus in and talk about is the question of leadership and what does leadership look like in the McAlevey model and what does leadership look like for socialists who want to develop uh, worker power, essentially. Um And obviously this is such a crucial question for anybody who considers themselves a leftist or a Marxist is how do you build leadership within the working class? It is maybe the single most important question that you can ask at any point. Um, And McAlevey provides a pretty straightforward um, answer to this, which is she, and mentioned this concept of the activist, right? Who is sort of ideologically motivated is predisposed to be involved with the union. And she counterposes that to what she calls an organic leader, right? An organic leader is what she defines as somebody who has essentially a social circle or a social base that even prior to union organizing happening, they're influential, they're respected, they can move people. And she specifically says that these are often people who are not initially interested in the union or union organizing. her model very, very much says that those should absolutely be these the people that a labor organizer focuses on. You identify the people that have, that what she calls organic leaders that are in this position of sort of respect or leadership within a social group already, minus the union, focus all of your efforts on them and bring them on. And in a way this absolutely makes sense, right? And I do think that there are lots of cases where this does play out. You look at a lot of issues, one of the biggest organizing issues currently and historically has been the question of how do you organize different nationality groups? How do you organize different language groups, right? That is absolutely a, a, a real question that you have to deal with. And you do have to understand the existing social dynamics of a particular group rather than just kind of barging in. However, what, One of my main issues with this is, is that it sort of poses a static image of workers and a static idea of you either are an organic leader or you are not, you are an activist, right? And all of our efforts should be focused specifically on these organic leaders. Now, in my own experience, that's never been what it actually looks like and one of the kind of light bulb moments for me was that in kind of my organizing practice was like, okay, I can let go and not be so stressed out about the idea that I'm talking to a bunch of people and not only the organic leaders. Um, there have been lots of times where there was somebody I'll take an, a specific example. Somebody I'm thinking of who worked at Tartine Bakery was extremely social, talked to a lot of people, t- was, Uh, bilingual, talk to Spanish speaking workers, talk to English speaking workers, extremely hesitant about the union, never wanted to talk to me, right? Always tried to, she always avoided it, right? And the way that we were able to get her on board to help out with this, it was not by only focusing on her, it was by organizing as many workers as we possibly could. Where we were able to have conversations with masses of workers who were able to build up the level of, um, like Anne talked about, this idea of something is not right here. This is not a just situation. And that was what made the difference. You know, those one on one conversations were important, but this sense that, okay, this person is not alone was much, in my experience, that was much more important. And I do think, you look at this here, and the other thing I want to bring into it is um, some of the historical examples of how unions are made, specifically in this upsurge uh, in the 1930s, creation of these CIO unions, which if you are a leftist labor organizer, that is the, the period of time between like 1930 and like, 1946 is, uh, I, I know it like the back of my hand is just obsessed about it, but whatever. <laughs> and you, you look at what the actual practices were used in these. And again, it's really relevant for us as leftists. You have communists who are leaders. You have communists who are organizers, who for the most part, some of them are, but a lot of are, for the most part, a lot of them are not paid staff organizers. For the most part, these are workers in the shop, and a communist who gets a job at a particular factory with the intention of organizing. To me, that that really is the definition of an activist, right? That's somebody who is ideologically motivated, does not at all have an initial existing social base. But something happened where these people end up being leaders. They ended up being the people that led these unions into these monumental, titanic struggles with capital that we still base all of our thoughts on right now. Um, There's a book by um, Judith Stephan Norris, Maurice Zaitlin called Left Out, I highly recommend, but it talks about what is the actual impact of communists involved in the labor movement during this same period. Poses this question, they pose this question that is, okay, well, why is it that Communists became these organizers. Why is it that they were able to become these leaders? And it's a really simple answer. He says, Communists were more willing than the average worker to face gross employer discrimination and even violence. The labor relations climate of employer espionage, discrimination, violence, such qualities as indifference to being fired, willingness to work night and day, and courage to face threats of physical violence were prerequisites for successful organizers. These qualities the communists possessed. In my experience, I have seen many, many times somebody who does not start as a leader, right? who does not already have an existing social base, but believes passionately that fighting for a union is the right thing to do. And through that belief and through their commitment, these are people that have an incredible amount of integrity and courage and work ethic. And their co-workers see that. You, their co-workers notice when they are the first ones to stand up and challenge the boss. Their co-workers notice when even before they have a union, they're the ones to walk in with them into a disciplinary meeting with the boss and challenge them. Those things do make a difference. And so I do want to really hammer home that this i don't believe in this static model of a binary of there's an either an organic leader or there's not And i believe i truly truly believe in the transformative power of being involved in workplace organizing it does change people in a really fundamental way um, the other thing that i wanted to raise here is that i have a real concern and again some of this is borne out by my experience being a member of unite here being an organizer with unite here that this specific method of that McAlevey utilizes, it does actually produce instances where you have very effective fighting forces of workers, right? However, I often see with this type of model, there is not a lot of room for uh, the development of real worker democracy. One of the things that does go unacknowledged in this type of model is there's the, there's this funny thing that happens in some of these conversations where the organizer themselves whether it's you know often presumably a staff staff person with the union is not really part of the equation right and to talk about examples of actions and things that can happen you know we want to do a structure test by having a sticker day um, we want to you know build up and, and try and have as many people sign on to a petition as possible and it's almost always, in, in a lot of ways, it is a one-way line of the decision-making where there is leadership that has made the decision about, this is the strategy we're going to use and has developed a really effective way to carry that out. However, again, if you counterpose that to what a lot of the building of these unions in the 30s looked like, it was an attempt to build up on a mass scale, the development of that strategy Between masses of workers, obviously that is the definition of easier said than done, right? And I am not at all suggesting that that is something we can just flip a switch and do overnight. And I'm not at all knocking the fact that, you know, Unite Here, for example, they pulled off a nationwide hotel strike like three years ago, and that's certainly that's nothing to sneeze at, right? But I do see a limitation in McAlevey's model as I see this as an extremely effective way to build unions. I see a limitation of not, I don't see a path forward in building beyond unions into a working class movement that goes beyond this kind of a trade union consciousness and does use the strike weapon to challenge things that are beyond kind of What is typically what typically does um, is the strategy that uh, that kind of union staffers come up with or kind of union leadership does come up with. Um, So, I what I'm interested in doing, I'm not interested in throwing away McAlevey's model. What I want to do is say, how can we take this model that does implement a rigorous approach to saying, how do we build power? How do we build towards a strike and the importance of the strike and build it? and uh, combine it with this approach of building mass worker democracy in a way that I have seen is transformative for people um, in their ability to actually have, not only a say in their workplace, but a say in a much larger way. Um, and I think we need to look a little bit about what some of the examples in our history have been and apply that to this. So. I think that's all I got. Thank you.
1: That's great, Evan. Uh, That also leaves us with a lot of important questions for (laughs) building a socialist movement. Um, Our third panelist uh, is Alex Schmaus, uh, who is a member of the San Francisco movement of rank and file educators, uh, which I mentioned earlier. Um, which is sort of a a group of rank and file educators within the larger union of UESF. Um, Alex is also a member of the Tempest Collective and the Democratic Socialists of America. Um, And so I will hand it over to you, Alex.
3: Hi, everybody. Um, I'm speaking through my phone because my connection isn't great on my computer. Um, I guess I'm gonna be the one that offers the most um, strident criticism of, of McAlevey, um, and I'm going to try to make an argument that, um, we need a totally different independent sort of perspective, um, and method, uh, as, as a socialist movement. Um, the, and yeah, my comments are based on my own experience organizing and also, you know, like a cursory reading of McAlevey, um, participation in some of her organizing schools, organized through the UC Berkeley Labor Center, um, that a cohort of uh, United Educators members participated in. Um, And also um, some alternative readings that I would like to suggest that people could take a look at. Um, I don't really claim to have independent, or like original thoughts here, you know, so I'm, uh, Some of the the pieces that I read to prepare for this were is um, an article by Charlie Post and Jacobin from about five years ago called The Forgotten Militants. Um, uh, An article in uh, Against the Current um, by Marion Swerdlow that came out more recently called What Method of Organizing? Um, And uh, a forthcoming piece uh, by Avery Ware in Tempest um, that's gonna be about McAlevey and her relationship to Foster and the tradition of the Communist Party. Um, the So, but I, I guess I wanna start with, you know, where our meeting kind of started, um, which is like, what is the state of the labor movement today? Um, oh, also could, I wanna stay within 10 minutes. So if Ryan or Alex, if someone could give me like a heads up when I have, should wrap up in about a minute.
1: Um, yeah, I'll give you the notice at like 7.59.
3: Perfect. Thank you. Um, yeah, so like the labor movement today, I think, is in a deep crisis. Um, there are definitely reasons to be hopeful and like events that we should try to be a part of and learn from. Uh, you know, like the in, the recent increases in the number of workers on strike. We were talking about the 10,000 workers on John, at John Deere that are on strike today or the looming strikes um, of film and television workers and um, healthcare workers. I mean, we're talking about tens of thousands of, of workers uh, potentially going out on strike. Um, some of the biggest strikes uh, in decades, um, but the overall rate of workers on strike is still very low by historical standards. Um, and we can also look at the failure of new organizing, um, whether that's in new industrial manufacturing spaces um, outside of the Midwest, like the Upper South, um, or in um, uh, the new the new logistics sector with like some really important um, uh, sort of uh, uh, bottlenecks um, in the economy that Kim Moody and others have written about. Um, you know, so we could talk about the failure to organize at Amazon, um, which I think is really an existential question um, for the labor movement, um, uh, or or the failure to organize the tech industry, which is one of the other new dominant sectors of capital accumulation in this country. Um, the truth is that employers have been winning a one-sided class war for most of the last half century, um, and that is not turning around. Um, In this moment, unfortunately, Um, and that's like uh, that's so that's a crisis for the labor movement. Um, And um, you know, I agree with uh, things that both of the speakers have said before me, including something that Anne, I think both, I think both Evan and Anne talked about in different ways, which is that you know, socialism is the self emancipation of the working class, right? It is the self reliant social movement that abolishes the present state of things throws off capitalist domination and status hierarchies of all kinds. So the decline of the labor movement is a crisis for the socialist left as well, right? Um, And um, we need a way of explaining why things have gone so badly. Um, There are many popular, I think, but poor explanations. Um, So one is the, um, the poor legal environment. Um, that labor faces um, in the United, today, United States today. And we do face a poor legal environment. Um, and there are efforts to try to change that with the, um, the pro act um, advocacy that has been going on. Um, but I think if we look at history, we find that often you see a, a rise in the labor movement precedes uh, changes to the legal structure. Um, that's definitely how um, we've seen it in this country. Um, so the, I, I don't think that's a good explanation um uh for why things have gone so poorly for us. Um, you know, there are other explanations that kind of point to changes in the structure and composition of the working class, um, deindustrialization, that sort of thing. Um and um I think a lot of those explanations don't really take account for the fact that um the proportion of industrial manufacturing workers has been declining for like 130 years or something like that in the United States. Um, so, uh, you know, that's that, that that doesn't really say much. I mean, that's it's something that's been happening for a very long time, but there's been upsurges in the labor movement over that period of time, you know, like the period of the 1930s that Evan was talking about. Um, uh, and it also, I think a lot of those um, arguments Miss that there's actually been a reindustrialization of the U.S. economy, um, starting in the 1990s, um, and you know so there's new there's new industrial landscapes in this country. Um, there's been the rise of the logistics sector as well. Um, so so that doesn't really answer the question either. I think part of the explanation um, is that there is a real crisis of strategy um, in the labor movement, um, in that. Um, we started to see the problems uh, develop uh, in the strategy of the labor movement, I think, as early as in the 1940s. Um, So what what Evan is saying is totally true about the rise of the labor movement in the 20th century and the period, especially the 1930s, um, that was so important to that. Um, But starting in the 1940s, um, you saw an institutionalization of the labor movement, um, and that blunted worker militancy. so you saw this by like sort of a limiting to like labor law, um, a sort of um, limiting the organizing to bargain, bargaining units that are set by labor law, um, instead of organizing class-wide movements. Um, you saw this kind of a limiting to routine collective bargaining um, on a set schedule um, instead of being able to rely on working class initiative um, and self-activity. Um, and I think we also see this in a reliance on a um, institutionalized grievance process uh, that often has its own slow timetables um, instead of uh, what you know what were much more effective practices, I think that we saw uh, develop in the 1930s and in other moments based on direct action at the workplace. Um, Uh, so, you know, the sort of institutionalized strategy that developed in the 1940s, like did work in some ways for a time, um, but it always relied on a relationship with the liberal democratic party and like more or less friendly capitalists. Um, so when those, so when the capitalist class started to change, um, and the democratic party with it in the 1970s. Um, you saw a real crisis of this institutionalized uh, strategy of the labor movement. Um, And that's you know kind of, that's been going on for a half century now. Um, The crisis of strategy, I think is a necessary, but itself on its own is also an insufficient explanation uh, for the crisis of the labor movement more generally, um, because, We have to be able to explain explain why we haven't adopted a new strategy like why have we been you know the labor movement been continuing on this like suicidal course um and um i think the part the the big part of the answer there and um this is i think the key to what the socialists alternative perspective and practice in the labor movement ought to be um is uh, the missing militant minority the missing social layer of workers with a vision of an alternative social and political project and a capacity for self-generating strategy for like learning that a layer of workers that with a socialist vision that can learn from their own experiences um, and adopt you know a strategy based on those experiences, um, and um, I think a militant. Like a minority actually um you know people mccalevey might call union activists um which is something that i think we should like proudly reclaim like i'm proud to be a union activist um uh and it's it, we're talking a min- about a minority of people and that's because um as charlie post writes and others you know you you have an uneven development of working class consciousness and that's rooted um, in the necessarily episodic character of class struggle under capitalism, right? Like, no, like all workers can't be out on strike, occupying their workplaces, and leading insurrections all the time, uh, because you know we're we 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 live precarious existences and we rely on um, you know sub, sub sub subordinating ourselves to capitalist domination in order to get a wage and survive. You know, uh, so. Um, not everybody can be fighting all the time, um, but alongside full-time union officials and um, more, most of the time passive, massive workers, there can be a militant minority. And those are the, the you know, the communists that Evan was talking about in the 1930s. Um, uh, they've taken, you know, the militant minority at other points in history has taken more politically heterogeneous forms, but it's always had, you um, a radical politics and an alternative social and political project um, to, you know, liberal capitalism. Uh, you know, Ernest Mandel said that these are the people that don't abandon the front lines of class struggle, but continue the war by other means. Um, so I think that's, you know, basically what we have to center our strategy around as a socialist movement: is building a militant minority. I think who is McAlevey and What is her appeal? Um, I don't think she's someone that is really proposing an alternative to the institutionalized forms of collective bargaining um, that have been sort of the dominant strategy in the labor movement for 70 years, 80 years um, since the 1940s. Um, She's, I think, represents a layer of the union officialdom uh, that wants to do that with a more liberal politics um, and, a, and maybe some more militant tactics. Um, it's a militant liberal business unionism. Um, the, and you know, like that, you know, is not an entirely bad thing, um, you know, and it creates, um, uh, you know, I believe in, I, I don't believe in lesser evilism at the ballot box, but I do um, in terms of like a union movement, I'd rather have a McAlevey union leadership um, that a traditional business union leadership, um, you know, I think that's better for the socialist mo- movement and the militant minority, um, but what we are doing, I think, is something different, um, or ought to be, um, the, uh, so, yeah, I mean, she, um, I think one of the things that people find valuable about McAlevey, um, and, um, her writings and definitely the the members of UESF that I that participated in the labor schools that she led um is that because of the low level of struggle like people just don't really have an opportunity to engage with any kind of systematic thinking about organizing um so regardless of what she has to say like if you're making a space where people can start to think systematically about organizing um you know, like that's, that's a valuable thing. And like things like the intentional conversation that Evan is talking about are not like um, original thoughts or unique to McAlevey, right? Like they're just, you know, good practices that you you develop um, from thinking about organizing and from, you know, the experience of organizing. Um, so- intended,
1: Alex, Sorry, to interrupt, oh. interrupt. I didn't-, I didn't.
3: Yeah, I, I, think I jump in I, I, there I, I, Sorry. yeah I think I could wrap up there. Um, I have more to say I think this is a really rich discussion um, uh, and we should continue it in different ways and there should, people should do writing and um, uh, because uh, you know again there's a real crisis of the labor movement and the socialist left and um, there are also reasons to be hopeful and so like let's let's make like, make our action effective.
1: Thank you Alex, uh, sorry to I just was trying to pick my spot to come in there. Um, so we can uh, do a couple of things. I mean, we can um, uh, take questions from people. We can give each of the panelists also a couple of minutes maybe to respond uh, to each other. Um, if we wanna circle back to points, you know that were made um, uh, earlier, we can do that. Um, so Anne or Evan, uh, if you, if you want to make some follow-up comments, um, oh, yeah. or we can take questions from people.
2: Brian, uh, let me just interject. So why don't we let, uh, people, you know, ask questions or make comments? You know, they don't, they don't have to just ask questions and then, you know, so let's give them a chance and then, uh, and then let's see how things, uh, develop.
1: Okay. Uh, Terry, you're on stack, so go for it.
4: Hey, uh, sorry, I'm also talking through a phone here. Um, So uh, I'm wondering if there's anything people who are unemployed can do. I'm unemployed right now, I'm looking for work. One of the last jobs I tried to get would have been a union job, and I had made contact with the union and said, Hey, you know, I used to work where you work. I wasn't eligible for the union. I want to come back and get a different position that is eligible for the union. And they like, supported me but I don't think there was any like explicit way or method that they could support me to get hired. Like is there a strategy like how do you get a union job in the first place when you know people on the union? Uh how did how do they help you come in or how do you help yourself?
0: Can I take can I take this
2: <laughs> please Okay,
0: I'm going to in an incredible. I'm going to attempt to link this to uh, what Alex was saying about unions being, uh, yeah, the the roots of union weakness being in the '40s. So bear with me here. Okay, um, so most people that you talk to, that you ask them, when was the labor movement defeated and who defeated it? Right. Um most people will tell you Ronald Reagan and the 1980s, right? And I don't believe that's actually correct. Um, I would put it at, you know, Alex raises some, I think, real salient criticisms of the structures that developed specifically in the forties. I'm of the opinion that there was a lot of strength and a lot of um, possibility throughout the entire forties, but I would say it was the labor movement, as it was as like what we want it to be was defeated in 1950 by Walter Rother, right? If you don't know who Walter Rother is, he was the president of the United Auto Workers. And, and most people consider him a hero of the uh, labor left or labor liberal at the very least. Um, however, he, added, he negotiated and uh, led the, the process to get a contract that was known as the Treaty of Detroit. Um, What the Treaty of Detroit did was it traded with the major car companies. Um, it, It essentially ceded the right of the union or workers to fight over any shop floor conditions, to fight over anything about the way business was run in exchange for the promise of higher wages. So if you compared the wages at that point from then on at, the UAW represented factories versus somewhere like the UE, which was more militant, the UAW was getting higher wages. But what ended up happening was again, there's seeded control over, you know, how do you actually run the business? And so one of the most important things that people fought and died for in that kind of, what we could say is the heroic period of the 1930s was control over hiring, right? our kind of famous strike here, um, you know, both the San Francisco General Strike and the 34 Maritime Strike was about a lot of things, but it was including uh, the fight over the over a union hiring hall and worker um, control over who got hired rather than just having it be arbitrarily decided by the employer. There's still some pockets where they hold on to it, right? So the The waterfront workers that's still how it's done here on the west coast not the east coast um so all that being said that right now that is the reason we can blame walter rother as to why it's so hard for terry to get a union job right now (laughs) um but the the more practical answer is that it's it's tough it's very difficult um and it's there are some places that that it is possible um the Inland Boatmen's Union does control the hiring for ferry workers. Um, all of the trades, the construction trades do still, in a way, um, they're very conservative in a lot of other ways, but they do control hiring, uh, which is a big um, reason that they've been able to hold on. Um, and, and unfortunately, in most places that are union represented, the way to get a job is the way to get a job anywhere else, which is through the boss. So. and SFUSD is
1: hiring. Yeah, I I wanna plug uh, the book called A Rainbow at Midnight, which is about this period of time right after World War II um, and this compromise that struck for um, to basically, like Evan was saying, exchange, um, you know, higher wagers for control over working conditions and also for, you know, the the movement for shorter hours kind of comes to an end. Um, at this period, right after World War II, and you know, on the heels of like the biggest strike wave, strike wave in American history in 1946. J- Janina, is that? I'm sorry if I'm not pronouncing your name right.
5: Hi, no, it's fine. It's Janina. Um, Janina
4: sorry, I, about
5: that. I'm part of the Santa Cruz DSA. Um, I'm really excited that you guys are doing this panel. Um, we actually have our labor organizing working group tonight that I skipped to be here. Um, the So like, first of all, it's just really exciting for me to hear people talking about a critique of McAlevey in my own union. Um, and also I'm a graduate program coordinator for the Department of Literature at UCSC. And so I was heavily involved as a staff member with the graduate student wildcat strike that started there. And the I think both in UAW two eight six five, and then I'm an unrepresented member of UPDI, um, which is part of CWA. Um, there's been like the McAlevey book has has really like been used to create limitations and obstruct, um, just kind of what what I would consider to be rank and file organizing. And part of um, part of how I see that happening is that despite her really excellent critique of the mobilizing versus versus organizing model in the introduction, her methods for organizing workers doesn't hold up to that same critique. And my experience, and also from reading the book, is that the way that she considers organizing within unions is is actually also top-down. It is overly reliant on staff, and overly reliant on outside activists coming in and building strategy, and then telling the workers, this is what the strategy is. This is how you organize. It's not an organizing with, it's a organizing. So like, it's a organizing them. Like it's a thing that they're doing to workers, not a thing they're doing with with workers. And something that um, I think is sort of produced from that idea, is that the union itself holds all of the resources they hold all of the lists they hold all of the like all of the funding they hold all of these things and so doing real rank and file organizing becomes impossible without buy-in from staff and without buy-in from leadership and i also don't see her talking about the way that staff fundamentally have interests that are opposed to what workers need as union members and so, you know, like the money that a, a union generates can be used to provide staff benefits, staff salaries, and it can also be used for the strike fund. And so there's a, a way in which staff are self-interested in having strikes be shorter and self-interested in settling a contract faster. And that happened with UAW, which is what led to the Wildcat strike. Um, and Anyways, I just wanted to raise some of those points as like things that I found really frustrating in both working with people that are using this model, and I also just wanted to give a shout out to all of you for really talking about the way it's inflexible, and I just like I think that needs to be talked about so much more. So thank you.
1: Thank you, uh, thank you, Janina, for sh- drawing on your experience uh, at Santa Cruz and everything like that. Um, that, was, that was really interesting. Um, it looks like Alex G is up, and then Alex S, and then uh, N. All right, Alex.
6: Oh, hi, this is, uh, <coughs> sorry, Alex Borlick, uh, Chair of Education at uh, DSA. So a couple of different things that I want, like the, 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 the panel to comment on is, you know, how and Janina has somewhat gotten into it, and so has Alex. Asked, uh, but you know, how do we, as uh, educators at DSA, you know, help people to understand different organizing models and what are the resources that we can offer them, and you know, for ourselves to understand? Because I certainly don't come from you know labor organizing, uh, uh, background myself, so you know, I think, you know, and I've read the book and I thought it was great, but, you know, I haven't been exposed to a lot of different, you know, organizing theories. And, you know, while this one might be great, and I'll get into what I think might be at least one problem with it that I perceive, um, is we should always be, you know, heterodox in different strategies, in different periods, in different environments, and not just have, you know, we're pursuing one strategy until we until it you know stops working and then it doesn't work as as we kind of ended up you know uh, in 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 2020. Um, so that would be question one for the panelists is just how do we find more resources and and begin that discussion within DSA uh, about organizing and, and 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 try to do that creatively. And the second is my particular point is you know as I'm reading the book I'm noticing like this strategy seems to be really relevant for situations where you're starting uh, an initial situation in general. um, And you have that kind of heroic period where, you know, you're beginning the union in that particular workplace, but how how well does it work as things go on for years and years? And does that reliance on, uh, McAlevey's reliance on, you know, what she calls the natural leaders, how does that hold up over long periods of time and I noticed, you know, throughout the book, again, it's mostly focused on situations where people are starting, or or in the, the for example, in the, the situation with the, the the teachers union in Chicago, you know, a union that was basically moribund and you know a, a group of people use her strategy to restart. But yeah, you know, as you're you know, progressing in, in the labor conflict for, for years and years, how well does that hold up over time?
1: Thanks, Alex, um, Yeah, had that, you know, we might use your question as an opportunity maybe to t- talk a little bit about more the, the Labor Circles priority campaign and DSASF and uh, this upcoming training on, on Sunday. Um, I'm gonna kick it over to Alex S, you're next on uh stack.
3: Yeah, I, I got back on because I wanted to, um respond to Janina about um, the experience uh, at UC um, with the, uh, I, I just wanted to say that I really agree and it was definitely my, I was working at Berkeley High School at the time um, and was a part of the East Bay um, DSA chapter uh, that had um, members that were Um, part of the UAW 2865, the Graduate Student Union at both UC Santa Cruz and UC Berkeley. And um, as well as members that were, so there were rank and file members and then there were members that were um, in the, like that were officers, principal officers of the the local um, in the chapter. Um, And so the, in part, the debate within the union, um, took place within the chapter, um, and, uh, the labor committee of the chapter and, um, the general membership. And, um, I think it's definitely true, um, that McAlevey's arguments were mobilized, um, by those folks, those comrades that were aligned with, um, the local officialdom, um, against, those comrades that were a part of the rank and file Wildcat strike, um, as well as those that were trying to organize in solidarity with them. Um, And, um, you know, we could debate whether or not Mac Levy, you know, what her intentions are in her writings, but they were definitely mobilized against the rank and file movement. Um, And um, I just think, and part of the, the way that that happened was this, I think, Janina is right, like a very kind of rigid, um, argument for built for patiently building, um, you know, majorities and super majorities for action in a way that is really only possible. Um, if you have access to the resources, um, of the union apparatus, like, uh, you know, so like if you're an officer or a staff person, um, And um, it just doesn't fit with my own experience of the only time that I've ever been on strike, um, which was when I was working at Berkeley. It it was kind of a weird juxtaposition because I was working at Berkeley High School as all this was going on. um, And we had a wildcat strike um, for one day uh, that was part of uh, the negotiations that Berkeley Federation of Teachers was having with the school district. and the wildcat strike was absolutely organized by a militant minority um, that or, uh, had a site place site organization at the high school um, that organized a general assembly at lunchtime um, where about only about a third of the 300 staff people at the site participated. And we voted to organize a wildcat strike the majority of students and staff ended up participating in the wildcat strike, um, but only after the minority decided autonomously to take action. Um, and you know, so that's the only time I've been out on strike. Um, I, I, I I don't. That's not an experience that I think um, uh, is is like very common right now in the labor movement. Um, uh most people that are, you know, the small numbers of people historically that are out on strike, most of it is through like routine collective bargaining uh, campaigns, uh, but um, it doesn't have to be that way. Um, and um, so I, I wanted to say that, I just wanted to begin on and share that experience. Um, the and I also wanted to say in response to Terry like, A, you, we need people to work in the school district. Nobody wants to work in the schools right now. Um, you don't need a degree to work in the school district um, to get involved in a union. And actually the schools, um, and I know Evan mentioned that Inland Boatsman's Union, the ILWU local are actually really good places, I think in particular for DSASF members uh, to try to get jobs because they're places where we already have public the education sector and the ILWU are places where we already have concentrations of members. Um, so uh, we can do more when we're concentrated in places like that. Um, uh, but um, I think one of the implications of a strategy that's centered on building up a militant minority is that legal unions are not the end-all be-all. And actually, like I think the most important thing um, is concentrations of socialist workers you know, in workplaces, sectors, and industries. Um, though That's what's gonna build the unions. That's what's gonna build the struggle. That's what's gonna build socialism. Um, So you can get organized at work um, even if you don't have a union. Um, And, um, you know, there was a time when we organized, you know, unemployed workers were getting organized too. That's also possible. Um, So, yeah.
1: Cool, thank you, Alex. Um, All right, so I've got Anne and then Evan on stack.
2: this is really a great discussion. I know, isn't it? Yes, Uh, so uh, I want to just go back a little bit and then I want to talk about what Janina was uh, raising because she raised powerful points. Um, So look, part of the problem of the labor movement is that they've been relying on the Democrats. And since the 1970s, the Democrats embraced neoliberalism. I mean, how stupid can you get? (laughs) I mean, it's just, just, so why don't we just shoot ourselves in the head, you know? It would be a lot easier and a lot less painful than relying on the Democrats who are kicking you in the face. So I I give credit to McAlevey for criticizing that approach. Okay, so, um, and look, we should also, uh, you know, in terms of what's wrong with the union, we should also take into consideration, this is class struggle. The 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 corporations have gone on the offense. They went on the offense in the in the uh in the early 70s, and they have been going full steam ahead, trying to stop us at every turn. So it's not as though they've just been playing their same, you know, the same role throughout the 30s and 40s and uh 50s, etc. They they have gone on the offense. And that and uh and one of their chief mechanisms of domination has been the two-tier system where, you know, Ryan and I are stuck in it at, a, uh, at, at the university. And, you know, if there's so much animosity between those of us who are contingent faculty and those of us who are uh, tenured faculty, lots of animosity. They think we're stupid. We think they're stupid. <laughs> I don't know who wins in a situation like that. Okay. So, uh, and, and but you know what? I, I really appreciate is these uh, comments and uh, uh, Evan made it, um, uh, Alex made it, uh, that there's this undemocratic side to um, McAlevey, but it's it's a little bit um, nebulous because she talks about the rank and file being in control of the union, and if they're you know leading the union, the you know they're the union and all of this stuff. But I, I got the I read uh, those shortcuts carefully, and it's not as though she brings out the fact that the, that means that the rank and file have to be the decision makers. You can't tell them yes. what to do and That's expect true. them to be fully engaged in the union. But that is not made clear by McAlevey. So uh, but and furthermore i found her discussion of the role of the staff and janina this is yeah you made a great point about a conflict of interest here um she was very ambiguous about the role of the staff because uh she criticized alinsky for saying that the staff have got to be in the background and the the rank and file are the leaders she criticized that and uh but um but uh, on the other hand, she's saying that the rank and file have to be the union. So she was uh, but I think in practice, she does rely overly on the staff. and as uh, Janina said, uh, they talk to us, not with us. And so and and they do have a conflict of interest. And I have seen this time and time again in our union. Uh, for the staff are pretending to be our best friends, and they've got our our local chapter president wrapped around her little finger, and yet she's undermining us in these subtle ways every step of the way. Well, that's because she's um, our statewide union is controlled by bureaucrats, so they're directing her, and uh, she's trying to undermine our rank and file. Uh, organizing every step of the way. But, I, I, but in, in, in all of this, though, I just do want to say that I think there's a, a powerful critique of um, McAlevey about her failure, her, her over-reliance on staff, and her failure to really explain how the rank and file have to have control of the, of the union. They have to define what the, um, the direction it goes, and they have to define what they're going to fight for, not the staff. So, um, uh, and, and just one final thing. Look at the show. I think the Chicago Teachers Union was a really great example. They did not rely on McAlevey. They relied on Naomi Klein's shock doctrine, which was terrific, uh, because that's what, that's what they're doing to us. They, uh, as Rahm Emanuel, our, the, the evil person on the horizon, said, never let a crisis go to right- waste. So they, you know, there's an economic crisis or there's a pandemic and they use it to take more from us because we're all, you know, stressed out over the situation. We're isolated and so forth and so on. So um, uh, so the Chicago Teachers Union really did do rank and file organizing, really did give the rank and file a lot of the power and um, and um, deserve a lot of credit for that. Okay, so I'll leave it at that.
1: Okay, awesome. Uh, Evan, you are up on stack.
0: Yeah, thank you. Um, I appreciate what everybody has been saying. Um, kind of thoughtful level of critique. Um, one thing I wanted to talk about though, and just kind of in reaction to some of the points that, been, that have been raised. I do sometimes worry about, um, you know, we talked a lot about the critique of, of some of these elements of McLevy being inflexible and the one that I was f- focusing on is this idea that a worker is either an activist or an organic leader and sort of not understanding that that people develop and are changed through the process of organizing. I also do think there's a certain way that we can be inflexible in another direction, which is I, I worry sometimes about, Uh, having so much of an emphasis on only the shop floor and in the individual shop floor that it's almost like we do kind of throw out the concept of leadership and of mass action right Um, because there is I, I don't believe that you know the problem with unions is that there is you know, leadership or that there is, you know, even that there's a bureaucracy, right? It's, there's this dialectical relationship between actual effective leadership that leads people into conflict and the actual level of conflict that's going on, right? Um, You look at somebody like, um, you know, the example of somebody like Harry Bridges, who starts off as a member of a militant minority, who is like, he's handing out a fucking newspaper on the docks, right? That's that's classic militant minority stuff, giving out a newspaper, come on. Um, <laughs> uh, but through that transformational process of organizing does end up in leadership, right? And is able, the reason that that union is still as powerful as it is and is one of the few that still has some, not all, and not. I'm not completely naive about the current, ILWU, but has some of the aspects of the old C is that they have been able to use mass action in a large-scale organized way, and they're able to fight on the same level that capitalists fight, right? Most of the time, one of the advantage, disadvantages that we have is we're not even close to being able to fight on the same level as, as the capitalists. They can fight on an international level, right? Um, so I, want, I don't want to abandon this dialectic between the level of shop floor, radical, militant minority action, and then also using that to transform these organizations as a whole, right? So how can we make this UAW local into something that is an effective fighting force as a whole, and not one where it's we're actually stifling um, this kind of rank-and-file upsurge? Um, And then just kind of one personal example I wanted to give that in my mind kind of exemplifies this, right? So my grandfather was, um, he was a machinist, he was a UE member, United Electrical Workers, one of the more militant left-wing unions, RCA plant in uh, Camden, New Jersey, right? Very like deeply Irish Catholic guy, right? And there were two things that that he talked about. He talked about how being on strike as part of a mass movement that was you know, masses of workers organizing, being on strike for six months was the best thing that ever happened to him in his life. He also talked about how he was influenced and brought into that level of radicalism by uh, one of his coworkers who was a communist who talked to him about some of these ideas, right? And so... Again, I do think in my life, there's, there's that dialectic again, of that shop floor action, that transformative leadership combined with, at that time, what the UE was kind of one of those models of that large scale um, organization that can really do battle with capital on the scale that we need to. Great,
1: thanks, Evan. Um, Alex, uh,
3: you're up. This is gonna be my last comment. Um, I still think this is a great discussion. And in some ways, I think we're actually getting to the meat right now of um, some of the questions that the left um, has grappled with uh, for decades, like including within the tradition of the militant minority. Um, right. Cause like once, like within that tradition, uh, you know, there are many tendencies, I think, um, uh, it's not like a singular thing. Um, and, um, I think one of the things that, you know, even like the most heroic, um, actors, uh, in the history of, um, the labor movement, um, it's certainly in this country, right, which was I think, the you know, in the, probably in the 1930s, um, uh, you know, led for the most part by uh, people in and around the Communist Party. Um, uh, one of the things that um, that tradition and I think in, in that in this case, not just at that point in history, um, the U.S. Uh, Communist Party workers, but internationally, um, didn't really uh, grapple with, I think, was a theory of why um, labor officialdom uh, tends to be so conservative. Um, There was basically a plan, you know, there was a strategy and a plan um, to capture leadership positions um, and staff positions in in order to try to push a new, more militant, um, sometimes more democratic uh, practices uh, in the labor movement. Uh, But there wasn't really ever a theorization of why um, uh, we were facing the problem to begin with of a conservative officialdom. Um, And I think, as we've had more history uh, to live through and learn from of legal trade unions in capitalist democracies, right? Um, There's been more theorization of this. And um, I think there are um, socialist and anarchist um, and other forms of radical politics that have developed different theories, but there are some things in common, um, which is the idea that Unions in a capitalist democracy uh, are contradictory, right? I mean, some of this goes back to Marx's writings, um, but um, they're both the basic unit of um, defense of, you know, working class living standards of the class struggle, um, and they're organizations that mediate uh, between bosses and employers, um, and the uh, people that have staff positions and full-time official positions, um, the bureaucracy, um, uh, you know, have that conflict of interest that Anne was talking about, right? Where they, you know, they're part of a labor movement and they want the labor movement to win, Um, but they're also part of an organization and they want the organization to survive, right? And like the legal role of the organization um, is to mediate uh, between two classes, right? So that you have, I think that's the root of the conservatism. And it means, I think, that um, while like, we shouldn't rule out capturing those positions, um, you know, for tactical reasons, um, uh, we can't center our strategy on it. Um, You know, like the the Communist Party in the era of the popular front called it permeationism. Um, Like, I I don't think that's the strategy that I'm advocating for. Um, I I don't think, you know, that is gonna lead towards building a bigger and stronger militant minority um, and socialist movement. Um, the Because of that structural um, uh, problem uh, of the labor movement. Um, so I, I think, you know, we really, the working class really truly has to be self-reliant. Um, and, you know, it is capable of organizing uh, on a mass scale. And, you know, we can learn from that history. Um, You know, William Z. Foster, uh, who was, you know, probably the most generative figure to come out of the Communist Party, you know, came into it, you know, being a generative figure uh, to begin with. uh, You know, one of the most um, important figures, I think, in our history as a labor movement, Um, you know, led um, mass organizing campaigns uh, in meatpacking and in the steel sector uh, without any kind of official position in the labor movement you know, he wasn't a leader of a union local or a federation or anything like that.
1: Thanks Alex. Uh, Janina?
5: Um, I, think, I think you guys really um, like teased out a question for me that I think is sort of like, uh, like at the center of how I'm always trying to think about um, how to move forward with labor organizing, which is, you know, like there's, um, like when we're talking about leadership and also like one of the things I found frustrating about McAlevey is this idea that through labor organizing, through finding these natural leaders, you can produce um, people That have a leadership capacity. And, you know, like McAlevey says that, like, the the sort of like natural outgrowth of that is producing people that can be electoral leaders for the left. And that essentially is like taking those people out of the labor movement and turning them into mayors or something. Uh, And in the same way, you know, like having a militant minority that through experience and organizing can produce leaders that are really strong leaders within a union. Um, you know, like there's a way in which that framework is relying on finding good people to be in smart positions. And it's not really addressing the structural problems that we're facing. And so, you know, like, like Evan, as you pointed out in your talk, the, like the limits to, the, to one of the limits of this model is that it's building unions, but not working class power. So like with that in mind, like when we're trying to think about like how do you reform a union that's gone, that's gone sour, um, you know, like it does feel like the first step is getting people into leadership sometimes. Um, and I've seen that happen um, in, my, in my own union and also in UAW. And it, it tends to produce just this cycle of leadership change. And it doesn't seem to address like the thing that we need to be figuring out, which is like, how do you build working class agency as a worker with your comrades um, in a way that can like actually withstand and build pressure in a way that the leadership doesn't necessarily matter. And I don't, I'm not suggesting that leadership never matters. Like I think really big changes can happen from one person getting into the right spot at the right time and, you know, tearing everything down. But ultimately, without that strong working class power, not just in your own union, but everywhere, it's, um, it just it's a limit that uh, I don't have an answer for. It's the, the question I always have is like, what is the thing that we should be doing as socialists? That's beyond just electing people. And like, how do we build that?
1: Okay, uh,
0: Evan, you're on next, and uh, and then Anne. This is why I know this is a good conversation because I keep wanting to be like, oh, I talk, I want to talk about this, I want to talk about this, like reacting to like what everybody is saying. Um, but I guess one thing I want to say and like really kind of like put as fine a point on this as I possibly can, and this is maybe directly kind of piggybacking what on what you to just said. I am firmly of the belief that a union leader getting somebody into union office. In isolation, essentially does nothing, right? Uh, again, there's this. There, what happens is that union leaders are generated through heightened levels of conflict, right? And there's this. I do think there's this dialectical relationship that happens, where the more conflict there is, the more leaders, real leadership, that really develops out of that, and then you have people that can, you know, help essentially, I guess, provide some level of leadership as these struggles kind of get to a larger scale, right? That only works as long as that kind of level of conflict between the classes is actually happening, right? So, I do think it is actually completely correct to say that the focus should not be on get somebody into union office. Absolutely not. And that's the hardest question, right? That's the central. The central thing is what do you do to raise the level of class conflict and organization really at that ground level and build it up from there? That's, that is the question. And I believe that the leadership comes out of that, right? It's like, again, going back to the previous example, Harry Bridges did not create the 1934 coastwide strike, Right. It was this group of incredibly highly dedicated workers who were former members of the industrial workers of the world who came in and made it their mission to organize and to make this shit happen. Um, on this, this contradiction of people are correct to identify that, yeah, this this role of the first line of defense and a mediator between the classes is... Uh, I th- I think that contradiction is inescapable, right? And in a way, I- I'm somewhat at peace with that, right? Um, the reason for that is because I, I don't remember who wrote this, but I- and I'll try and find. I read somewhere uh, a Marxist writer who said that unions, like trade unions, um tend to be inherently defensive organizations for the working class, right? Very, very rarely are they offensive uh, organizations that are really pushing forward a political program. Now, I think that's okay, because when you look at in instances when there's revolutionary periods, right? When you actually have masses of workers um, engaging in, um, in sort of really revolutionary situations, taking things over. What tends to happen is that the crises are not generated by the union. The crises are generated by capitalism and these wider forces that are at play and make this rupture. And what happens in that period is if you do have that level of like, like class conscious, highly organized workers from the ground level, they fucking grab the machinery of the union and they're like, okay, now we're going to do this revolutionary stuff. But it's really not until that moment that you see it. It's not until that moment of rupture that you see that kind of um, revolutionary moment they own that kind of brief second where unions shift from being defensive to offensive organizations. Um, I don't have the answer, but I do think it's, you know, I think it's a, the question is how do you navigate that contradiction in the meantime, building up that level of organization, building up that level of conflict. And there there are ways through the um, 30s and early 40s that some of these, these uh, elected leaders in unions, they did figure out ways to navigate that contradiction and not completely succumb to that conservatism. So there are examples of that in the past where it's like, you build that up, and then when that revolutionary rupture happens, if you have done, if you have laid the groundwork, if you have organized people, then they now have an institution that they can take into their own hands and utilize.
2: Um, so, I just want to give a, a stab at the question Janina raised about, you know, how do we, you know, make this um, union experience more universally transformable um and it's, it's and i completely agree with um what people are saying that electing people to a mayor position is just absurd you know you got to take into consideration you know everything in our society is really corrupt i mean just you know just to begin with we are victimized daily by corporate scams that try to take our money um Uh, and not give us anything in return. I mean, it's just a daily part of our life, you know, this robo calls, all of that sort of thing, but just going, uh, advertising, all of this stuff, we're constantly being victimized. Our political system is incredibly corrupt. It's all, it's, it's about money and it's about people who want to climb up the ladder. And there are a few good people who get into this system and then they kind of, they they're just isolated individuals they get overwhelmed you know they can't stand up to an entire ocean of corruption they're just this little drop of water so um so not so you can't um I, so what my my only answer to the to the question is look at you start a, a little action in your union where you put up a valiant fight and what can happen and what does happen typically is that you're heroic effort inspires other workers it's just like what happened with the teachers unions you know the west virginia te- well the, you, you had the chicago teachers union that was uh, 2012. but then later on the West Virginia teachers, you know, did it really did a remarkable thing organizing, you know, and standing up for everybody, not just for themselves. It was really, really inspiring. And then that spread across the country to state after state after state. So, uh, victories and especially heroic, inspiring victories can spread quickly, and at a certain point, and I'm gonna bring in the dialectic like Evan did, at a certain point, quantity can turn into quality. But you gotta get enough of the, these experiences going, and we haven't had that experience yet. It, it happened in the 30s, where you know they, the whole culture was just transformed uh, because of the union movement. But uh, we haven't had that in the union movement since then. And, um, you know, I'm just convinced that it's going to come, uh, you know, that the, the American working class is a fighting working class, but it's got to get that, it, you got to build up the momentum to overcome this incredible resistance that our society imposes on us and keep, holds us back. But once that happens, then the whole show opens up, and everything becomes possible. Everything becomes possible that previously was impossible. So I think it's just you know it's it's all it's our duty to just keep pushing and pushing and pushing on our little terrain to do the right thing and try to try to um, uh, bring our coworkers to uh, collective action, do it democratically, and then. You know, and if we win, just have the knowledge that that can spread, and then, and then you know, if it spreads enough, we got a whole new ball game. So I'll leave it at that.
1: Okay, um, I had a question. Uh, there was a question about if we were ending this at nine o'clock. Um, I don't know if we had officially set an end time. Um, I, I don't. I'm, I'm not sure. Um, but we've got uh, Terry and then uh, Bill on stack. Terry. Yeah,
4: thank you. Thank you, Anne. Um, Thank you, everybody. Um, I have a lot of kind of unformulated thoughts. I'll try to keep this quick. Um, What's on my mind a lot right now is I'm a native person. I'm Cherokee, Choctaw, Chickasaw, and I'm involved with the anti-pipeline movement a bit. And with some indigenous sovereignty work. And um, when I think about who's on the offensive right now, Native people are really on the offensive right now. We're not like waiting around for something to happen, whether we're unemployed or we work in really unusual industries or we work in the home or, you know, we're academics or we're artists or, you know, a lot of Native people are actually in the military. Um, And when I think about like, mass organizing as a mass movement i think about like what material conditions do we want in the first place like a lot of us are fighting for money like do we really want money do we want food do we want ecosystems do we want the planet to survive like and then i see these contradictions where like pipeline protesters are fighting man camps man camps are like these encampments of male predominantly male fossil fuel workers who show up in tribal communities and cause all sorts of problems. Um, And that's, you know, and then we have things like the Red Deal, Red Nation, where there are indigenous people tying socialism to being indigenous and the values of being indigenous are inherently socialist. And um, yeah, I'm just wondering like how, how can we get the labor movement to think more about these broader questions and not just our individual workplaces, how can we build a mass movement that thinks about what are we fighting for in the first place, things like that. It, it, sorry, it's all like all over the map.
1: Uh, Evan, you want to go ahead and, and take that and and um, Anne is after that.
0: Yeah, I, lo- I would love to, again, I, I apologize, but this this conversation is very exciting and engaging so I keep wanting to be like, oh, yes. <laughs> um, so I think that there's a lot of there's a lot of really crucial things that you identified there, Terry. One of the things that makes me think of is um, the Detroit Revolutionary Union movement, which was this convergence of the uh, Black liberation movement that had come into this incredible level of organizing and radicalism with the uh, with auto worker organizing. And what it was, it was this combination of again some level of existing uh, labor organization with this kind of broader rupture, mass organizing that happened. Um, And I do think that's an incredibly important thing to bear in mind when we're talking about labor organizing. Um, It is that my my perspective on this is that as Marxists, the reason we focus on a workplace is just because that is where it's that is where you can, That's it's a tool essentially, that is where you can directly impact capitalist profits. But it's not always, not even often, where these sort of upsurges, these ruptures actually start from. Um, and I do think that is like the, the Detroit Revolutionary Union Movement, that's like a micro example of what radical and revolutionary workers' movements actually look like. Um, with regard to the thing about the pipeline workers, um, it's a slightly different thing here. I, it, it reminds me of, there was um, a lot of conversation, It's it's been ongoing, a lot of conversation um, over the past few years, including last summer during the Black Lives Matter uprisings, Ferguson uprising, everything, right? Um, It's Sorry, it's been an ongoing conversation about people ask the question sometimes, are police workers, right? Um, I actually, I am of the opinion that, yes, police are workers. They're doing labor, right? Prison guards are workers. They're doing labor, right? There are some types of labor that are inherently destructive, right? And I think we need to kind of hold that and be just accept that and be okay with that because I think it's a difficult argument to make that a prison guard and a police officer isn't performing labor of some type, right? And just, we can be nuanced in some way and say that, yes, not just because this person is a worker. There's nothing moral about being a worker. It only means that you are in a certain position relative to capital that is extremely strategic. That's all it means. Um, and, again obviously it's like the the revolutionary agent there is the indigenous people fighting the pipeline right and the more that unions can the more that workers can be involved with that at the same time as as this level of kind of um bottom up power building that that's that's where the magic happens in my opinion so
1: okay uh and europe up-
2: Yeah, I just wanted to respond to Terry too. Um, uh, So let me start off by saying what the unions do that uh, drives me crazy in relationship to uh, Indigenous people. So one is the AFL-CIO came out and supported uh, the pipeline. (laughs) That was doing lots of lots of good paying jobs there. So that was one thing. Secondly, and you know, uh, forgive me, I mean, this might not be a popular position, but my union engages in the practice of land acknowledgement so we start off every every meeting and I find this really kind of a meaningless um, ritual you know it's like well now we feel like we're morally superior because we acknowledged, you know okay now let's move on to something more <laughs> interesting you know da, 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 da. It, it it adds up to zero it, ha- it has no meaning whatsoever. So, um, you know, I'm uh, I'm from an older generation, Uh, you know, we were very um, uh, influenced by the uh, American Indian movement. Their demands were for self-determination. Okay, so that's an important demand. We should you know, the Union movement should embrace self-determination for the uh, for the indigenous people. Secondly, we should insist that all of the treaties be respected. You know, Black Hills go to the Lakota people. and you know we just uh, treaty after treaty, just you know the European Americans have shown that they have no respect for the land. They're destroying the planet. And so it's time to just stop it. And let's let's, let, let's get people who know how to respect the land back in control so that we can save the planet. Because you know, I'm we're uh, we're up in the Sierras, you know, and they they're just destroying the place. In, in the chronicle yesterday, Lake Tahoe is turning stagnant. You know, you take the most beautiful and you know, just incredible. Um, natural features and they're destroying them. They're destroying the Sierra Forest. They're destroying everything. And, and they, they don't care because all they care about is money. So, you know, I, I think the union movement has to uh, just kind of make a huge turn, embrace the cause of the indigenous people, and put them in the leadership in terms of saving the planet, because otherwise it's just being destroyed every day and all you know all the media has to tell us is we've got to learn to adapt you know as if this is inevitable you can't stop it you know oil companies love oil what can we do about it you know it's just it's just uh, something that we have to learn to adapt to so i'll just leave it at that obviously in a frustrated way
1: yeah uh, i learned so much uh listening to everybody today I, it was just a really great discussion um, um. Yeah, thank you to all the uh, panelists and, you know, everybody that contributed and asked questions and drew on their experiences. It was just a great discussion tonight.